This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to The Soul's Journey with Tom Jacobs. A fresh look at astrology shaped by channeled wisdom on the soul and its human journey. Enjoy inspirational insights on how to change karma and make changes for the better. And now, here's Tom. Hey, this is Tom Jacobs, and this is The Soul's Journey about astrology and channeling. I'm an evolutionary astrologer and energy worker and channel on the web at tdjacobs.com and want to talk about something very serious today, and it is um, this thing that, that I notice happens, I mean, I want to say it's all the time. You know, I mean, I think that might be a bit of an overstatement once I kind of lay it all out for you, but I noticed that, um, I mean, it even happened today when I woke up, I noticed that I was breathing. And yesterday, I noticed that when I was um, engaging in what might be called an escapist behavior so that I wouldn't have to be aware of my breathing, um, it was still happening. I don't, I don't know if you have the, that nagging sensation that, um, you know, that you're always breathing. It's like you can't get away from it. This is, you know, this is a problem. I think this is something that most people, if, even if they would not admit it, experience. No matter what they're doing, they can't escape that nagging sense that they're still breathing. <clears throat> well, so I kind of mean this in a mostly humorous <laughs> fashion, but uh, the show is about a deeper exploration of suicide than... I've gone into in the past. There is, uh, there are two free resources on my site on the articles page. So you go to uh, my homepage and then you go to media, and on the left you see articles. And uh, there's a free transcription as a PDF, and also the original, I think it's about 70 minutes of audio of Ascended Master Jehudi, me channeling him on this topic called Healing Suicide. But I want to go into it and talk about dealing with intense emotions, dealing with the depth of emotions that we can have, learning to deal with what we're carrying from the past. And uh, this stuff has been on my mind. I'm also going to give you a little of the backstory of my relationship with this topic. This has been on my mind probably since, well, I think it started when I was about 18, but it kind of started before that, but a, a certain kind of vocabulary started coming in when I was about 18. Oh, wait, no, hey, I got to tell you why this topic is on the show list, like why why you're hearing this today. It's because I'm constantly breathing. I have this nagging sense that no matter what's happening, I'm breathing. Um... No, if uh, I don't know, last week, a couple weeks ago, my girlfriend and I went to Steve Forrest's apprenticeship program in Southern California where he talked about 
the faces of the wound was the title of the program. Just different explorations of what it means to be wounded and, and what to do with pain and this kind of thing. And so we, we did that for four days. And then we went for another two and a half, three days for a little mini vacay, uh, not that far. Uh, the program is a little east of San Diego. We went a little north of San Diego. Got, oh, yeah, you heard last week I was uh, recording from Encinitas, so we were there. And while we were there, my girlfriend apparently saw something on the Facebook and said to me, oh, do you remember this guy that we know and his wife, our casual acquaintance we met once three years ago? She killed herself. And apparently it runs in her family. This is all she said. And I didn't say anything, but something in me got really um, peeved, I guess is one way to say it. And I didn't know why. And I knew that, she, you know, my girlfriend probably has in that moment an appropriate response to finding out that an acquaintance of ours has committed suicide. And I, so I was able in the moment, I had the wherewithal to observe that my response, even though not articulated yet, was inappropriate. And I didn't say anything. Maybe, I, I have no idea how much how much time elapsed before I had to say something. I want to say it was an hour and a half, two hours. It could have been more like 40 minutes it, during which I felt time accelerated because I was articulating in my head what um, what my, you know, what that feeling was that I had. And I, and I said to her, you know, three eternities slash 40 minutes later, two and a half hours later, Hey, can I, um, can I make a comment about that, that person that you just told me about having killed herself? And she said, sure. And I said, I know this is an inappropriate response. Um, but that is extremely annoying. It's, and I said, I know it's an inappropriate response because you're supposed to be sad or something. Like, here's Uranus in the first, like, I understand people are supposed to feel things. <laughs> it wasn't really like that, but it's kind of like, you know, I have enough human smarts, <laughs> you know, non-robotic human senses to um, to remember <laughs> that other people feel things. That's not true. Um I mean, it's not true that they feel, <laughs> sorry. Uh, anyway, so I, I know that there are appropriate responses, but I just had this sudden, instinctive, visceral, uh, frustrated, annoyed response, annoyance. Oh, do you remember so-and-so? His wife killed herself, and I'm annoyed. So I realized it kind of ties together almost 25 years of just about everything that I've thought about in that time, 24 years, actually, you know, just turned 42 since I was 18. And uh, so I decided that I was going to do a show called Stop Killing Yourself. And so here we are, you're listening to it. But I realized that a great deal of my life, I have in some way been thinking about suicide. This is something that I have known since day one, whenever I was cognizant of my options, that I could not do this. Um, that's from being like a child and a teenager. I knew that this was not an option. I knew it. That was it. And it doesn't matter, or it didn't matter how bad things got. And it doesn't matter how things, bad things might get in the future. 
this is not something that I can do. And it's not something, it's not a sense that I have an opinion about it. It's more this, the most deeply kind of, deeply rooted kind of moral stance is what it is. When I was 18, oh, and, and my teenage years were in some ways shiny and wonderful, and in some ways, some ways they were not. So as you know, if you have been a teenager, things, you know, you're not sure always how to articulate your feelings. You're, you're, you're in the place where feelings are happening, but you're not quite sure how to communicate or how to understand them or if they're normal. And also my whole life to that point had been a Pluto transit. So Pluto in my 12th had passed over my Venus when I was very young, my ascendant when I was about three, and then Uranus, Mars in the first. And so when I was in high school, I had Pluto going over my natal sun in the second house in Scorpio. So this is, of course, part of that part of that energy where, you know, kind of a question of how much darkness can you handle or how can you handle the fact that you carry things that look dark, etc. And for me, that what looked dark was actually powerlessness. And then anger that, you know, grew from the pain, the helplessness of feeling powerless. So now here I am in my adulthood, you know, little, little Tommy, little Tommy grew up, has a driver's license, can buy liquor, all that stuff. Oh, look at our little Tom. <laughs> and uh, now I have a different vocabulary for it, doing a deep advanced form of evolutionary astrology where I'm constantly spelunking the Plutonian depths of myself and teaching others how to do the same, I have a, have a, you know, a, a new perspective on it, a, a matured perspective on it, but I still have the part of me that feels powerless. This is Pluto. This is my Pluto in the 12th. You know, I need to, just briefly, I need to, uh, my soul says that I am hereby, you know, Tom Jacobs is hereby officially invited to learn how to become empowered through dealing with 12th house forces. And these are ones that can make us feel powerless. These are ones that are much bigger than we are, over which we have no control. Anyway, so so I get that. There's part of me that was expressing itself with, you know, not, I mean, I'm not trying to paint the picture that you should feel bad for me when I was 14, 15, 16. It's not like that. It's just that there was an immensity, an immensity that I was dealing with emotionally. And which which people can do. Now, oftentimes when this comes up, people sometimes wonder if they should end their lives. And But again, I knew this was not a possibility, which made me even sadder. <laughs> so figure powerless and then angry about feeling powerless and then feeling sad because you, there's no way out. That's where I was as a teenager. And at the same time, I was doing different stuff in school where I was... Um, I was doing like some student leadership things uh, in the music program uh, where I grew up, and uh, anyway, so so I was doing all these things that were actually productive, <laughs> but inside there was a sense of, you know, what's the point? Why should I do this? Except it felt good. Tenth house south node. I liked getting attention. I liked performing a service for my community. Blah blah blah. But anyway, so the sense of that was there. So when I when I uh, was eighteen in English class, it was early in the first semester, the the teacher has a, assigns us to read uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger, 
The last name is C-A-M, like Mary, U-S, Camus. He's French-Algerian. He's a philosopher and playwright, novelist, but most people think of him as an essayist or a novelist and playwright. But in fact, I did my thesis in college in part on him as a philosopher, and, and actually some of my professors who wouldn't have considered I was actually a philosophy major, I didn't mention that. And some of my philosophy professors who wouldn't have before that considered him a philosopher did. Like the the history of science guy, uh, logic, um, you know, history of science, Kant, logic, like all this stuff. And, it, you know, the, 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 the scientific uh, side, the mathematical uh, proof-oriented side of um, – of philosophy, that that professor was one of my advisors, and he told me that he now considered, you know, after that he considered a Kimo philosopher, and that he basically indicated this was a, a major achievement on my part because I was able to show that. But anyway, so so anyway, I took the, the stranger when I was eighteen, and I and I knew there was something life affirming in there. But if you've read the novel The Stranger, it appears to be a picture of meaninglessness, senselessness, meaninglessness. So um, you are going to get a bit of a philosophy lesson today because this has been integral to my thinking and how I have um, become, you know, little Tommy grew up over the last 24 years. Uh, it is integral. So you're getting a philosophy lesson today. And part of the intention is to set the record straight because some of the, some of the subtleties in what you're going to hear in the next few minutes are intended by Camus and then I'm kind of repeating them as an antidote for a sense of meaninglessness, which, given consciousness, every person will experience. Like, basically, given sentience, every person will experience a sense of meaninglessness. So anyway, so the book was taught as a picture of somebody who is immoral. And uh, what happens is this, this guy kind of goes through this series of events, and doesn't assert free will, doesn't say yes and no, doesn't make choices, kind of goes with the flow and, and to this place where he um, kills a man on a beach. And then he is arrested, he is put on trial. And um, so you have this sense of somebody who is not repentant, right? this picture of somebody who has just made, you know, has just allowed certain choices for himself to be made. Camus' point is not that you should go with the flow. He's not giving you a model to aspire to. He's giving you a picture of what it what it looks like when you do not make choices. You do not say yes and no when appropriate. You do not have intentions. You do not have in goal, have goals. So I didn't like how this how this book was taught. And of course the teacher was bright, but she's doing the. Uh, you know, experienced a you know st strong mind, strong educational background, but she's teaching the the thing that people teach about this book. This is a standard line, and I didn't agree with it. So then, three years later, when I was thinking in, uh, I was a junior in college, and I was in the philosophy department, and my school uh, requires a thesis an independent study thesis to graduate. So this is where I'm going to do a dot, 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 and uh, invite you to come back after the commercial break. Uh, you're getting your philosophy lesson, but there are also commercials, you know, best of both worlds. This is Tom Jacobs on The Soul's Journey. Stick with me. I will be right back.
ever wondered what your soul is? How about how to create a meaningful life to make the most of your time on earth? In the important new channeled book, Conscious Living, Conscious Dying, Ascended Master Jehudi, a.k.a. Thoth and St. Germain, explains soul, life, and death to support you in living a meaningful life now. It opens with a description of soul and how it informs and experiences your human life. Creating a meaningful life and an in-depth exploration of death follow, making this a must-have for all humans. Conscious Living, Conscious Dying provides a roadmap for making peace with the reality of life and the fact of death to free you to make the most of your time on Earth. Get your copy of Conscious Living, Conscious Dying now on Amazon, Kindle, or at tdjacobs.com. Welcome back to The Soul's Journey. This is your philosophy lesson for the day, for the year, for the decade. I don't know how often you get philosophy lessons. Uh, this is uh, Tom Jacobs from tdjacobs.com. And this is uh, this show is called Stop Killing Yourself. I just I just want you to stop. So I put it right in the title of the show. Figured it would get directly to you. So um, when I was a junior in college, I had to do this uh, short thesis, mini thesis. And and in my department, um, the process in the philosophy department where I went to school, the process is about thinking and writing as opposed like thinking critically. And instead of turning, you know, the goal in many departments, for example, is a 40-page paper for the junior IS, the first one, a 40-page, you know, mini dissertation or something, 40-page research project. And in the philosophy department, the target's a little different, minimum of 10 pages, but reflecting certain quality of thought, certain processes and quality of thought. So I knew I was going to do The Stranger, and I had run it by my advisor, and it was fine, but I didn't know what it was going to be on what theme or what my point was, but for three years at this point, is that three years? One, two, three, four, one, two, yeah, three years at this point, from the beginning of, uh, three and a half years, from the beginning of my senior year in high school to the, to the you know, three quarters of the way through my junior year in college, I've been thinking about what was the deal with the stranger and why did I disagree with what the teacher taught about it, about meaninglessness, about powerlessness, about uh, uh, immoral, an immoral figure that we should judge, essentially, was the implication. And I sat with it, and I sat with it, and periodically he would ask me over the course of a few weeks, like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. It's great. (laughs) And uh, I think that he knew I was nervous. I don't think he had a lot of faith in me in general, because I did not project that I had any self-confidence in my philosophical abilities. I ended up in the philosophy department, quite frankly, after being in the music department. I did, hadn't declared officially, but I had gone to this place to study trombone performance. That was what I was up to then. Um, and then taking music theory really kind of messed up my mind, and I didn't enjoy playing anymore, and I wanted to play. That was the point. So I took like two and a half semesters of theory, dropped out of the third semester out of the five, and um, kept playing in all the groups and, and still you know, was involved in that community quite quite heavily, but um, was already in a, an intro to philosophy course, and uh, the professor had assigned, I think, six books for the semester, and one of them was a Dostoevsky novel, and he said, novels, literature, 
can be philosophical and philosophical themes we will pull from this novel. And that was completely inspiring, so I decided to be a philosophy major. <laughs> so so I'm sitting, you know, t the class on, uh, the cl oh my god, I see, I can't even remember people's na the, the author's names anymore, the philosopher's names anymore. Um, classes on this moldy oldie and that dead guy and that w bearded white guy. Like all those classes, like the, nothing really appealed to me because I had one question. I wanted to know what was the meaning of life, what was the point of life and philosophy from all available descriptions, seemed to purport to offer understanding about the meaning of life. <laughs> and uh, so I was listening to people debate the the stuff about if the, um, I'm not trying to make them sound trite or anything, but, you know, the question, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, does it make a sound? You know, that, that question came up. And... Uh, People, other people questioning the existence of God, you know, different debate kind of things. And, and I was very fortunate to be with very thoughtful, a very thoughtful community. The professors in the community at the College of Worcester, where I went, in Worcester, Ohio, um, were, fat, were fabulous. But still, these issues are looked at, especially as teaching tools to help train students how to think critically. And, but none of it appealed to me. And um, I was looking for one thing. And I knew Camus had the answer. So when I was a junior, I was sitting, meditating with this, like, you know, three paragraphs written of intro material, and I knew I was using The Stranger, pouring through the text, reading it. And after several sessions of this, one Sunday morning, I had this revelation. I understood what Camus was doing. And um, he was painting for you this picture, as I mentioned, of somebody who doesn't make choices and what can happen. It's not a cautionary tale that... Um, you know, you shouldn't kill people. <laughs> it's really not, actually. It's a cautionary tale that if you don't make choices, if you don't know who you are, if you don't make a creative choice on a regular basis, then you're just going with the flow and you're not creating any meaning whatsoever. So now this, we're, we're, we're almost done with the uh, philosophy section here. But um, no, we're not. Okay, existentialism. We have to do this. Because this whole idea of me saying to you, stop killing yourself, the part of you that thinks about existential questions comes up. So most people perceive and have been told that existentialism is this very depressing version, brand of philosophy, this very depressing branch. And in some ways it is, except for our friend Kimu. <laughs> so... Um, this kind of starts, maybe not technically, most people understand the existentialism comes in in the 20s and 30s in the U.S., but, but um, um, or 20s and 30s in the modern, sorry, in, it's in Europe, sorry, it's in, it's in uh, Germany and France, actually, um, with Heidegger and then Sartre and different people involved with them. But most people um, think that it's very depressing, and when you say existentialist, you might as well say depressed, melancholy, moody and down and suicidal. So, but it kind of starts with Kierkegaard in the 19th century, in the early early and mid-19th century. Actually, I can, I can never remember his dates, and I'm too Sagittarius to stop myself now to look him up. No, see, I have to. Okay, since I'm at my computer, I might as well, oh my god, fact check, oh my god. Anyway, I want, I keep wanting to say it's like he's active in the 1830s and 40s, but um, let's just, do, 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 let's just find out. Soren Kierkegaard, um, one of the most depressing figures ever, because he encountered this um, 
okay, so he was born in 1813, died in 1855. So yeah, so I'm not that far off. Anyway, so um, so essentially his questions about faith and his relationship with God, his uh, the Christ, Christian God, and trying to figure out the meaning of life and the point of everything is 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 his focus in his writing. Anyway, so it kind of starts there, and then other people kind of pick it up, and then Nietzsche's working with it, like, you know, and Nietzsche gets a bad name because of the, uh, you know, because of the whole Nazi thing, where he had nothing to do with that, but his uh, Nazi sympathizer sister had all his works translated when he was in an asylum, so it looks to us like he supported the Nazi agenda, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so different people pick it up, and then it blossoms in the 30s, and you have um, this this guy named Heidegger who is too smart for all of our own good. And then Sartre, and Sartre's really the poster child. <laughs> Imagine Sartre, like the seventy-year-old guy, wrinkly with a cigar. He's the poster child for um, for the bad version, the unhappy, depressing version of existentialism. And he basically says, existentialism basically says you, as a human, cannot avoid needing external meaning. You need life to be meaningful. You need the universe, the world, life, the external world, external to you. You need that to provide a sense of meaning, that you belong here, that you matter, that things are okay, something. Meaningfulness. But the universe will never give it to you. So those two those two things are the basic, basic building blocks, right? When you combine them, well, when you become a when a person becomes aware, existentialism says, of that truth, this horrible, stomach churning, um, vomitous, suicidal thought inducing, depressing, anxiety um, riddling, <laughs> uh, anxiety injecting, like 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 this feeling that comes up is the absurd. So in common common usage, we use the, that word absurd to be ridiculous, but like this, the, the original sense in terms of existentialism is this, this, this almost violent encounter that creates bleakness. This like, this visceral, the sense when you understand that life will never give you what you need, that you seem to have proof that life is meaningless and there's no point. So this is kind of where Sartre ends. I'm not. I'm trying not to be unfair to him, and I haven't read like every word he's written. But like, this is consistent, and this is, and he's the loudest one. He's the loudest one, because um, I don't know why. Because Camus was over on the side, like being a journalist as well, or doing something, doing something else. But anyway, so that's what we think existentialism is. When existentialism, that word comes up, we have these certain thoughts, and it's never good. So we laugh at it sometimes, right? It's 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 ridiculous to talk about the absurd, whatever. And the, the way it's kind of become a, a, a code word for, um, you know, intellectual indulgence, like philosophy and existentialism in general. And, you know, old white guys sitting around thinking about things. How useful is that? But anyway, so Camus says, okay, fine, fine, fine. Life is meaningless. What are you going to do about it? Like, okay, you can't find meaning outside yourself. What are you going to do about it? And Camus actually wrote a long essay called The Rebel, which is about uh, explaining why suicide is not an option. And I actually, I tried to get it this week. I couldn't get to the store. I just couldn't deal logistically with with it because of my own existentialism, existentialist issues this week. Uh, well, I mentioned when I was a teenager, I had uh, transiting 
put over my sun in the second house. Right now, at 42, I have solar arc Pluto right on my natal sun. So I'm having a similar kind of stuff come up with, you know, kind of this, this conversation about the, um, the flaws in the reasoning that leads to suicide. You know, that's coming up again, but now in a different way. Um, anyway, it's exact on December 1st. So over the next few weeks, you know, you can uh, wish me supportive energy and happy thoughts to continue processing this Plutonian intensity that's coming up. Um, you can uh, you can help me out by thinking good thoughts for me on that because that it's a really super intense time. I haven't talked about it on the show at all um, because it brings up suicidal thoughts and I'm not suicidal, but like the parts of me that come up are powerless and afraid and angry and all this stuff. So I haven't talked about it and even even uh, I decided to do the show you know last week. And then right after that, this part of me came up and was like, life is so meaningless. It, this part's very persuasive when I'm tired. <laughs> you know, like the part becomes more and more intriguing or, or le- I'm less and less able to divert and inspire this part of me when I'm exhausted, which I have been. Again, solar arc Pluto on my natal sun, you know, it's messing with the fuel that I burn to operate personality. So anyway, uh just laughing at myself because I have 5 million things I want to say to you and I'm watching the clock tick away. So, because um, this is important. This matters. This is like, this is my PSA for the week. This is it. My PSA, my public service announcement. Stop killing yourself. Yes, you're still breathing. Your observation that this thing is happening is true. That nagging sense of no matter what I do to distract myself, I'm still breathing. It's true. It's real. You're still breathing. And there's a reason for it. But anyway, so Camus says, what are you going to do about it? Because you can't kill yourself. I call, you know, and this is not to be un, uh, not to be cruel or unfair, but, you know, to the realities of situations. But again, the show is riddled with my opinions, and this is one of my opinions. When my girlfriend told me last week this acquaintance of ours had killed herself, and my inappropriate response was annoyance. And she said, it seems to run in her family, according to her husband, what he indicated on Facebook, I guess. I didn't see the post because I was so annoyed I couldn't deal. <laughs> I wouldn't look. Um, I say, well, you know what runs through her family is a lack of imagination. And I realized that that can seem very cruel. But this is what I've been working with since I was, you know, for the last 20, 25 years. Camus says that you will find that life is meaningless. You will encounter this feeling of the absurd. You will experience this essentially intellectually, psychologically, emotionally traumatic moment that life is meaningless. It doesn't matter what you do. Well, I mean, life is meaningless, but you can create meaning. So he talks about using your creative energy. I can't remember the phrases that that are translated, but the basic idea is this Plutonian approach to making, like finding the depths within you, accessing this depressive nature that may come up or may exist sometimes, that most people shy away from, but you know, so are Pluto on my Scorpio sun, I have Pluto Venus together, uh, you know, Pluto's activating half my chart right now, like transiting Pluto. And so, you know, this is something I talk about, (laughs) something I, uh, 
I talk about with that, you know, trying not to indulge in anything, but definitely talking about it. So we can understand it, so we can move through it. Because please, stop killing yourself. Humanity. <laughs> a choice creates meaning. A choice creates the experience of creating meaningfulness. meaningfulness. So this is Camus' position. So, yeah, well, yeah, you're going to find out that what Sartre said is true, what Heidegger said is true, what Nietzsche said is true, what Kierkegaard worried about and lost sleep over and complained about is true, and all the other people in between. Yes, that you are going to find that that's true. What are you going to do about it? So I, so I use this example sometimes when I talk about this. I never talk about it professionally, well, almost never professionally, but, you know, as I've explained what, you know, kind of my view on life to other people, sometimes this has come up. And sometimes, you know, friends have asked about what I did for my thesis, you know, because it was a big, it took a you know, year and a half that I kind of thought about it and worked on it. Um, making a choice means doing something. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be profound doesn't have to get attention, but what kind of world do you want to live in? So one example from Camus' life is um, he he worked as a journalist for much of his adult life. He, he taught, and he was a journalist. He did, he did different things. Um, but one of the things he did was cover what is, what is referred to as the plight of native Algerians. So he's French-Algerian. His family was French, like colonizing Algeria, right, North and North Africa. And when he was born, Algeria was a French colony. He was born in 1913. So he covered the plight. He talked about the effect of colonialization and colonialism, the realities of that on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis in the lives of uh, Arab Algerians, native Algerians. So this was one way he created meaning. Then he also wrote plays and wrote novels and, and uh, you know did philosophical stuff. But make a choice to do something, whether that's serving a community, whether that's creating something intellectual, whether that's creating something that is typically observed or considered to be creative, doing something. This is the route to come out of what will make people suicidal. So there are kind of two levels of suicidal, maybe more. Maybe maybe one of them has like multiple levels within it, sublevels. One is the intensity of feeling, the intensity of emotion. I don't know how to keep feeling this. I need this feeling to stop. And the other one is life is meaningless. Maybe they're related, maybe they're not. So all the work I do is, in, is uh, inspired by my creative impulse, my, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? impulse. What are you going to do about that stomach-churning, depressing, melancholia, you know, forcing melancholia down your throat? What are you going to do with that feeling of the absurd when you realize that the external world, the universe, will never give you the meaning you need? What are you going to do about it? My response is very directly to do everything I can to teach people how to deal with intense emotions so they know that they're not crazy and they know they can make it through whatever they're experiencing. This is what every single tool that I develop is about, to help you understand yourself emotionally so that you can stop killing yourself.
I don't, I've never used this phrase before. Stop killing yourself, people. <laughs> you know, like, like a collective humans. Um, but this has driven quite a lot of my own stuff. And as if, if you get the, the, the free MP3 or a PDF from my site, it's also in Kindle for a buck, the healing, Jehudi healing suicide, uh, you know, by, by Jehudi. My name's on there too. You can look it up. It's listed as one of my books, but he's listed as a primary author. Um, if you get that, Jehudi will talk about how I, the channel, you know, our little Tom who grew up, <laughs> little Tommy grew up, um, has past life history of suicide, but the thing is a lot of people do. And so that, that channeling that MP3 was, was really kind of a, an avuncular love letter from Jehudi to me that he knew I would pass on to others. And I really had a profound experience channeling that because, uh, I want you to hear it. I want you to listen to it. I did part of it as an episode a year, year and a half ago. And then around Robin Williams suicide a few months ago, I talked about it, uh, and was promoting it, but I want you to, uh, to look that up. Um, I think with the intensity of transformational changes that people are finding themselves dropped into the deep end of now, I think that the sense that the world is a harder place to live in, that the world is full of more and more danger, that things are less and less meaningful, there's more and more meaninglessness, I think that's seductive to want to give into. And it's not true, but we're encountering fears from our many lives that are coming up. Many of us are experience, are going to experience a sense of powerlessness, whatever the context, however it might be described, and parts of us will have a sense of powerlessness in the face of meaninglessness. So if you decide that you are strong enough to be compassionate with all parts of you no matter what happens, if you decide that you are going to be compat you are strong enough to be compassionate with yourself no matter what you are feeling you begin to to initiate a remedy for what you are feeling every single part of you that you don't want to look at every feeling that you have that you don't want to deal with or your you fear is too toxic or you fear would overtake you or would harm yourself or others every single part of you attached to these feelings is living with an absence of love, validation, acknowledgement, and support. So the very basic thing of, of, of making a daily commitment to yourself, and I mean seriously, make a daily commitment to yourself. I am strong enough to be compassionate with all parts of myself, no matter what. No matter what behavior you're choosing to try to deal with an emotion, you're compassionate, you accept that this, yeah, in this moment, this is what I'm choosing. I have a compassion for myself. I can withhold judgment that this is what part of me thinks is necessary or is the only remedy. No matter what you're thinking, um, I hate that political party. Be compassionate. You know, part of you might say, oh, these people, right? Or this, you know, I've talked about in the us versus them episode a few months ago. You know, oh my God, these people in the world, oh, their play, geez, just get over it. You know, like part of me has that, you know, apparently inappropriate response, but it's a part of me. No matter what I'm motivated by, maybe I'm doing this task because I want attention. 
which is not the you know always the most mature thing. Anyway, so if you make that commitment to yourself on a daily basis going forward, and seriously, I want everyone who's hearing this to play with this and do this. Play with it, I mean do it. I don't mean like dance around it, I mean actually do it. But if you do that, then what hurts will begin to hurt less because parts of you feel seen and accepted and loved. So uh, this is uh, time for the second break. This is Tom Jacobs on The Soul's Journey. I'll be right back to uh, do more of this. Okay, welcome back to The Soul's Journey. This is uh, your pal, our little Tom, who grew up and can drive and buy liquor and other things and can vote and be conscripted. Uh, be drafted. <laughs> um, not anymore. I'm 42. I think that's too old for... Anyway. Um, so stop killing yourself already. Maybe that should be the title of the, the show. So all the parts of you that are motivated to do unhealthy things are experiencing pain and they do not know that they're loved. You will tend to identify with these parts of you until you learn how not to, and this is why I do sessions for people. This is why I do meditations and channeling work and energy work, why I explain to you what your soul is having you figure out how to experience so you can identify with the intentions and wisdom of soul as depicted in your chart and through your guides and through the viewpoint of Metatron and Jehudi. If you judge fear and shame what you feel motivations you have then you withhold love acceptance validation and support which is what the parts need so if you separate yourself from the feelings you have not you know dissociation but a healthy sense of groundedness which leads to detachment and objectivity if you do this the parts of you begin to relax. There's also this thing about, uh, I'm always talking about how you are an energetic being, vibrating the world into existence around you. Well, what are you vibrating? Are you vibrating, I hate this feeling that I have? Are you vibrating, I'm sad that life is meaningless? You know, are you vibrating, I'm bummed because I'm powerless in situations A, B, C, D in my life? If you vibrate, if you choose to vibrate, that you are strong enough to be compassionate with all parts of you, no matter what you are feeling or experiencing, choosing, doing, or being motivated by, then you are vibrating strength. I didn't mention this. I keep forgetting to mention it. I, I talked about it like a month ago when I started it. But on um, the show page on my website, tdjacobs.com forward slash soul, S-O-U-L dot H-T-M-L, there is a deal for you. It's, a, it's half off the increasing immunity MP3s. It's two MP3 set, a, a talk that's about 20, a, third, a little over half an hour, and then a meditation that's about 24 minutes. It's almost an hour total. Uh, from Jehudi about immunity, which is to say strength, and your ability, 
like understanding and increasing your ability to vibrate, things are fine. He talks about alcohol, sugar, and media consumption, uh, consumption patterns as how they affect immunity. If you, you know, if you eat a lot of sugar, for example, you'll feel agitated. You won't feel, you know, safe. And and uh, the same thing with media. If you absorb a lot of mass media, you may absorb the fears. You probably do get attuned to the fears that are floating around in the collective through media that are expressed and reinforced through media. And then a 25-minute med- 24-minute meditation, which is about clearing out energies that make you feel unsafe and establishing that you are safe. Because physical health is a reflection of internal health. So when we increasing immunity, it's 10 bucks right now instead of 20 for Soul's Journey listeners. So I want you to go, go experience that and go play with that. Um, but this, but everything is about your perception of strength, and strength is not not having fear. Strength is knowing that no matter what you're feeling, you are strong. You can have compassion for all these parts of you. That's what true strength is. This is a, a rewording of the uh, new vision of plutonium power that I'm that I've been teaching, that I work with clients on a daily basis, and that I'm writing about. What does it mean to be really powerful? It's not tying our sense of strength and confidence, our ability to fear, our willingness to feel good about ourselves, to external reality. It's in owning all parts of ourselves. We have to know ourselves, then own all parts of ourselves, and know that we're strong enough to be compassionate. Strength is through compassion. Absolute self, unflinching, absolute, unashamed self-knowledge, and absolute, unflinching, unashamed self-acceptance. That is self-love. That brings the wisdom of your soul into your life because your soul has you here, the mission that you're here to do, by the way, no matter what your chart says, the underlying mission for all humans is to learn how to go from fear into love, thereby embodying divine power, which is love. I think that I could help Kierkegaard. I think I could help Nietzsche too with the angst. Um, I could definitely help Sartre <laughs> uh, because um, life does not need to be depressing. Like, like the depression feeling that we have, the depressive state, which is actually a normal human state that some of us can feel stuck in sometimes, or lots of times. That state is normal. This is a part of the human experience. Everything in the DSM the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Every single thing that's in there is normal. This is what's used by in the psychological psychology profession to diag- to understand and diagnose and uh, and uh, derive treatment options or understand treatment options for what are considered um, psychological, emotional, psychiatric illnesses. Everything in there is normal, but some people get stuck. It's normal to be angry. It's normal to have rage, even temporarily for five seconds here and there, quarter of a second here and there, murderous rage. It's normal to experience um, 
emotional ups and downs. Like it's normal to be happy today and sad tomorrow. It's normal to wonder about the meaning of life and wonder if you should hurt yourself. That, that's actually that's what that's what this positive view of existentialism is getting at. It's normal to have this the feeling of the absurd, that chafing, strafing, uncomfortable, stomach churning encounter will occur if you are in any way paying attention. <laughs> so this is part of the universal human experience: is the need for meaning. If you play with me often, you know that I look at Neptune as our need to find that life is meaningful, but also a sense of that it isn't. Um, but that's a part of our archetypal setup, is to need an external source, oftentimes in human history it's God or goddess, to tell us that things are okay and that we're fine and that we're safe. It's not happening. So fine. What are you going to do about it? make a choice. You're going to create something through making a choice about what you do with your energy, where your time goes. And I want you to um, consider that it doesn't matter what it is. That you are doing... So oh, the other half of the story, I don't have time to get into it, really. Uh, I can spend a minute or two on it. That Camus wrote The Stranger, this novel, as the illustrative literature, you know, creative side of this picture, the straightforward picture is his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, which is actually very popular, but people misinterpret it too. Because people can feel like a Sisyphus figure. Sisyphus is um, punished for... I, I, guess, I guess there are different stories, but one of them is... Um, tricking a god and stealing from him. I believe it was Zeus. So he's punished for having stolen from Zeus. Like in a in a, you know, thieving way. Not not like Prometheus trying you know, stealing fire to give to humanity because he was humanity's champion. But just he stole. He tricked and he got away with it. You know, he did it to get away with it. He did it because he liked it was the idea. He wanted to have that experience. So he's punished by having to push a boulder up this long hill, basically in the underworld, in hell. And when he reaches the top, the boulder, no matter what he does, rolls back down to the bottom. And his punishment is to do this in perpetuity. So the sense of meaningless toiling that people's lives can seem to become. Camus says... Um, if Sisyphus chooses to be engaged in what appears to be this meaningless endeavor, this perpetually unending, therefore meaningless endeavor, then he's creating a sense of meaning for himself. So you can work in a nuts and bolts factory for all of your days if you choose to be engaged then you're creating meaning. You could stand on the street and dressed as a hot dog and hold a sign for a hot dog restaurant or a tax establishment, you know, a tax professional establishment or a hair and nails place with a clever name. You could stand on the street and wave a sign for the rest of your life if you choose to be present 
with that with that behavior, then you are choosing to create meaning. You are therefore creating meaning. Now, some people, like part of me, would have you know has a judgment about not using my talents and not pursuing my passion. So the idea of standing on the sign, standing on the street, you know, dressed as a blueberry, uh, holding a a foam sign, or you know, dancing in a blueberry costume on uh, the street in front of a smoothie joint, you know, that's kind of depressing to this part of me. But I recognize, <laughs> can you imagine? Our little Tom, he grew up and he wears a blueberry suit and he, and he advertises on the street. He dances and he waves, he gives thumbs up. He blows kisses to motorists. Come have the smoothies. The smoothies are great. At a booster. <laughs> anyway, as they drive away. At a booster. Um, <laughs> I just have that image of myself. That's that's probably one of the only uh, circumstances in which I would dance. I have the sense that um, that I, I could change the world with my dancing. I have Mars Uranus in the first house. My genius in the, is Uranus in the first house. And, I, and, and a Libra. I could improve the basic living conditions of humanity through dancing, but I won't do it. I won't do it. <laughs> anyway, but I, I would do it. Um, I would do it dressed as a blueberry promoting smoothies on the street. Anyway, if you're engaged in the thing that seems meaningless, you create meaning. Now, your, your ego and your personality may judge that what you're doing is not meaningful. And you may, you know, living a life that seems very mundane. Maybe you wanted something bigger for yourself. Maybe you wanted to create something big and actually, obviously creative. But anyway, whatever you're doing, Camus is saying, if you are invested in it consciously, you are creating the meaning that every human craves, needs, cannot live without. So um, stop killing yourself. As far as I can tell, like I want to respect your journey. You have free will, but it reflects a lack of imagination. It reflects that you don't you don't know or you don't have enough faith that you matter, that your choices mean something. So stop looking, when I say stop killing yourself, what I'm saying is stop looking to the external world for validation. Stop looking to other people to tell you that you're okay, that you're acceptable, that you're loved, you're lovable. You have to generate that from the inside out. And this, as I said, takes you into the territory of the wisdom of soul to come through your daily life. You validate yourself. This is what every human's here to do. To go from fear into love is the general headline. Fearful, fear-based motivations into love-based, loving motivations. But no one will create the meaning that you need. You are the powerful divine creator. You're the only person who can do it ever. End of story. So whatever you do, thanks for joining me for this episode. And whatever you do, don't send money to support the show. Like, whatever you do, don't go to tdjacobs.com and send a donation to support the show. Don't call me for a reading where I could, through energy work and channeling and explaining your soul's journey to you, help you change your life for the better. Whatever you do, don't do any of those things. 
don't rate this and review this podcast on iTunes. If you love it, especially don't do that. So I'm on the web at tdjacobs.com. Thanks for your time, energy, and attention. Check out Increasing Immunity, half off on my site. Very important tool, half off. Thanks for joining me. I will talk to you uh, next week. Let me just look up what the uh, what the proposed topic is, just to give you a little uh, a little uh, thing. It's what if, and I'm leaving that as a mystery. I'm asking you what if, and I'm gonna do a whole show on that next week. Thanks for joining me. Whatever you do, don't support the show and don't rate the podcast. Take care. Bye bye. You've been listening to The Soul's Journey with Tom Jacobs, a fresh look at astrology and soul inspired by channeled wisdom. For more information, tune in every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Connect with Tom directly via www.tdjacobs.com. That's tdjacobs.com.